Welcome to Tales from the Dance Floor, a podcast exploring the lives and times of people from all walks of life who followed their passions and made careers out of DJing, producing, parties, dance culture, and the music industry. I'm Phil Morse from Digital DJ Tips. Let's get started. I'd like to welcome Sam Gribben to Tales from the Dance Floor today. Sam is the uh, the brains behind Melodics, which is an, a fantastic way of learning everything from finger drumming. Well, you're going to tell us more, Sam. But also, I first met Sam when he was uh, he was driving the growth of Serato, and that's a great story as well. So, a man who's had many many years in this industry, and I'm sure you've got some great stories to share with us, Sam. Welcome. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. So it's uh, one of those classic internet situations where you're in New Zealand and I'm in Europe and we're talking literally we couldn't be further apart time-wise. You put your feet up and got yourself a, a stiff end-of-day drink, haven't you? And I'm just kind of getting started. So um, it's I great have... fun, isn't it, being able to do this? Yeah, no, I think I think literally <clears throat> if I were to drill a hole all the way through the earth, I would come out about three, 400 kilometers north of you. <laughs> well there, there we go did you ever think as, as a kid that that would be fun to just dig a hole and keep going uh, i certainly did you yeah. just reminded me of it i did i, I did guess, kind I, guess of, being... I didn't know enough about it to figure out that you'd get really really hot and it would be quite uncomfortable no i don't think i did either but i i also guess that being a new zealand native that's something that's pretty common among people from new zealand right the idea of escaping and getting somewhere where there's a lot more people than sheep yeah I mean, we're very conscious of being a long, long way away from anywhere. I mean, like these days, I, I do travel quite a lot. And um, I was in Europe a few weeks ago, and it was one of, I think, the longest trips back I've ever had. I think it was 41 hours, like, from leaving my hotel to getting home. And, yeah, it's hard. You always got to go a long way. 41 hours is pretty extreme, isn't it? I've managed 23 23 once so it's all it's all about the transfers isn't it sitting around in airports in cities you'd never visit otherwise for inordinate amounts of time i think us kiwis can't kind of get used to it because you can't really go anywhere uh i mean like if i I can fly for like three and a half hours i think is and i end up in australia which is not that much different to here really so to go anywhere you need eight hours at least yeah anyway sam so your career is one of growing businesses and you came onto onto the radar of a lot of people in this industry of course at Serato uh, but what were you doing before that what was your lead up to 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 kind of being the entrepreneurial um, engine behind Serato all those years ago and we're going to move on through that time and we're going to move into your time now at Melodics of course but where did it all start where did this entrepreneurial zeal um, start and why the music industry um well I will uh indulge a little bit and tell you the story way back when because it is totally relevant and it's very very relevant to DJing I would love you to um it's a funny story uh I was a university student um and I was learning I was studying engineering electrical engineering um and my flatmate bought a pair of turntables and started learning to DJ and I thought oh, I'd like to do that that looks fun and I snuck in there when he wasn't using them and started practicing and then Ended up buying my own turntables. I had a pair of Technics 1100s. They were awesome belt drive turntables with like a it was a pit a knob for like the pit the uh, speed 
terrible, terrible things. But I, I learned how to <laughs> DJ. Uh, well, I started learning how to DJ. And at the same time, um, I was learning about engineering stuff and I was learning about radial encoders and all sorts of you know ways of measuring movement with machines. And, and that's when I started thinking, wouldn't it be cool? I mean, this was, I'm kind of showing my age here, but that was a long time ago. It was the mid-90s um, and MP3s were really starting to take off. You know, like I knew this guy that built this computer that had three CD drives in it so he could rip three CDs at a time into MP3s. Anyway, I started thinking, wouldn't it be awesome if I could uh, control music on a computer using a turntable? Like the, the what is now kind of widespread, the DVS concept. Um, but at the time, it was just a pipe dream and an idea. And I started telling my friends about it. I was like, I've got this idea. I think it could be done. Um, but I was not a brilliant engineering student. Um, by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and I definitely didn't have the technical know-how to figure out how to actually do it. I, all As far as I could get was, I'm pretty sure this is a doable thing. Um, mm. It took smarter minds than mine to figure out how to actually do it. Um, but I did become quite obsessed with the idea. Um, and um, when I finished university, I mean, like we were talking about um, Kiwi's traveling long distances it's also being on the other side of the world from a you know small island it's very very common for new zealanders to before they go to university or after school or after university to go and do this thing which we all call the big oe the overseas experience and go live somewhere else and i was thinking about doing this as well and um, i was thinking about various places i could go and one of the things that um i had noticed was that there was this company in Amsterdam uh, called Into-IT that had cracked this problem that I was really into. Um, and they'd invented this thing called Final Scratch. And so I was like, that's interesting. I'd love to work on that. Um, and various other reasons. There were some other kind of, I, I thought Amsterdam would be a cool place to live. And all my, all my other Kiwi friends were going living in London and didn't really want to go to the other side of the world and just hang out with my mates. I wanted to go somewhere a bit different. So anyway, I went to Amsterdam and I did manage to track down the, these two guys um, that had started this company, the company that invented Final Scratch and really had the first viable DVS product. Um, the only catch was when I met them, it was about four o'clock in the morning on this day called Koning in a Dach, which is Queen's Day, which is like a national huge party in, in Holland. Uh, and everyone at this party was severely intoxicated, including myself. And I totally, <laughs> totally stuffed up my first impression. I was just standing next to this guy. So, like, oh, yeah, you know what, you know, kind of chatting away, what do you do? And he's like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm in IT and I invented this thing. And I was like, oh, what you're the guy you're the guy that i've come from new zealand to find and he got a little bit carried away uh, and made a terrible terrible impression and then kind of the next day with a bad hangover i was like oh did i did i do that did i meet that person and did i like rant and rave about how i'd been thinking about this for years and come from the other side of the world turns out i had and um didn't really get very far with them um, but then I was just one day out of the blue, I got an email from a friend of mine back home in New Zealand and he was like, 
you'll never guess I just met this guy at a party and he's working for this company called Serato and they're doing that thing that you've been talking about for ages. And I was like, what? You know, how, it was a real confusing moment. But here I was in Europe and um, I'd been thinking about uh, where else this this DVS concept was, was happening and there were a few other places. There was a, a company that I've never really understood quite what happened to them. Um, they were in German. Uh, none of the ones that you know that we know of now. I think it was called the product was called BPM or something like that, and they were doing something that looked like DVS. And the other one um, was one from Seoul in South Korea, and their product was called Vinyl Twenty Twenty. I was like, maybe I could go to Korea. That'd be kind of cool. Anyway, um, turns out that it was also happening in a suburb of my hometown, um, which completely blew my mind. Uh, and I made, way, made my way back there, and I met with AJ and Steve, the guys that founded Serato, uh, and basically convinced them to give me a job. So that's how I got into the whole um, DBS vinyl DJing tech thing. So at the time, I mean, it's a great, it's a great story, isn't it? The uh, the circularity of it, going high, literally halfway around the world to to find it on your own doorstep, um, and uh and it was engineering and and a love of of music kind of coming together uh, and at that point it wasn't i guess anything entrepreneurial in your spirit or had you been doing stuff at school that gave you this kind of zeal for uh solving problems in the world and building companies around it i mean when did this side of your um character kick in or, or was it something you kind of learned on the job when you when you started working with serato no no i mean i guess they'd been there for i mean like part of the reason i struggled with my studies um, well, one, it was really, I found it very quite really hard. It's quite hard, and uh, my classmates were all really smart. It was quite intimidating. Um, but also, uh, a few of us in the electrical engineering class of that year kind of cottoned on to the fact that one of our classmates knew how to build TV transmitters, which is you know, <laughs> like if you're a very clever student, is not you know completely unreasonable because that's what they do but for us it was like what you're telling us you've got your own tv transmitter he's like yeah yeah i built it and so we um conceived of this great idea and came up with this plan to start a pirate tv station and um we got quite far with it you know like it was um we made this case to the university that what we were doing with pirate tv was not that dissimilar to what had happened 20 years earlier with pirate radio which then kind of gave birth to the student radio network which in New Zealand was a quite a was quite a big thing and the and um the student radio stations were really well established and had gone quite mainstream and you know like the one the one from my hotel is still one of the kind of you know better in my opinion radio stations um on air at the moment so we were like we want to do uh for television and experimental television what what these pioneers did for radio and, you know, we had this case and we were going to get a few hundred, we put this case together to raise some money and um, uh, build a pirate TV station or like a, you know, a student TV station. Um, so, yeah, that was distracted for me from my studies. Uh, and then when I went to, when I did go to uh, the Netherlands, I was working kind of in startups. Um, so I never, I've never worked for a company like a big Major company. I've always worked for small companies, and I've often worked 
at the beginning when they're small um, and often uh, when, you know, you don't even have really established roles. It's just a small team and you're all figuring out what needs to be done and who needs to do what. And that's kind of, you know, that, that has always appealed to me, that early phase of coming up with an idea and getting it off the ground and figuring out how to, how to grow it. So you were kind of in there at the beginning of, of DVS and we all, well, I say we all, I'm sure that a lot of people listening to this won't have a clue what I'm talking about, but remember Final Scratch. And I remember the first time I saw, I think it was Richie Horton using it at Sankey's Soap in Manchester in, in England, mm. um, turned up uh, with this system and I think it went wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, so at the same time, um, Serato is working on its version of it. Was, is that how it happened? Was it kind of like concurrent? Because I'll tell you one thing, the number of people I've met who, in inverted commas, invented DVS is huge. I guess it was one of those ideas that just kind of made sense. Yeah. But as you said, it, it took a certain level of expertise to make it happen, right? Yeah. I think it must have been incubated in the minds of people, and not to belittle your great idea, Sam, no. but all over the world, right, around that time. As soon as MP3s appeared, it was like, yeah, hang on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I, well, I take pains to just kind of clarify that I had a good idea, but I really didn't have the know-how to execute on it. Yeah. Um, and I think there were a bunch of people, and I think there's a there's a there's a word for this kind of synchronicity. I can't remember exactly what it is, but this idea that you know inventions pop out at a certain time because the conditions are all right, and it definitely was MP3s and and music being in a kind of native digital format, like not on not on a CD or a, or a mini disc or you know or a DAT tape or something like that, but actually in the computer. Um, that for me was the kind of trigger of like, well, sure, you know, like I just, I just remember thinking the cool thing about DJing with vinyl is, yeah, it sounds, this is a nice sound of the vinyl. There's all that sort of stuff, but really it's that hands-on being able to, when you're beat matching, being able to touch the record and speed it up a little bit and slow it down. Um, and that the fact that the music's on there is almost secondary. So, um, yeah, I mean, in the time that I worked at Serato, I was like, did lots of research and and heard all of these stories of people, um, you know, claiming to invent it. My favorite, of course, is the the famous RZA from the Wu Tang uh, interview where he just bust out, "Yeah, I just invented that stuff," um, which we can come back to if you. If I'm presuming you know that story, but if you don't, let me know. I, I actually do not know that story, and I was going to come back to it for sure. Um, so, but yeah, no, but I do believe that um, there there was you know there was a uh, I can't remember his name, but there was a, a student in the UK who wrote a research paper about it. All these things happened around the same time, mm. um, and uh, yeah, so I do think it's one of those synchronicity things. So I want to go back to Amsterdam, actually, because, um, you know, how old were you at the time? 18, 19, something like that? Um, I was um, in my early 20s, I think. Yeah. Okay, so you're spending a year away from, or however long it ended up being, away from home in Amsterdam. What was that like as a as a kid of that age? And I, I, I have to say I've got a vested interest in this because I did exactly the same thing. And guess what? Amsterdam was a city that uh, that attracted me back then. What was it like for you? You know, what do you remember from back from that time? Apart from blathering away to people uh, yeah. who'd invented DVS <laughs> at four in the morning, uh, it was just. I mean, it was it was amazing, and it was um, um, for someone who comes from an island nation, so isolated and so. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's especially these days. It's we have it's very multicultural and it's interesting, but it's still 
isolated. Um, and so being amongst it, really amongst it in like one of the most densely populated places in Europe, if not the world, was really eye-opening and yeah, it was amazing. Um, I loved it. It's, it really changed my whole worldview. So, you know, like I have I have worked with at time at Serato and, and now at Melodics, you know, like there's, there's young people who work for me who say, hey, I want to leave the company because I'm going to go overseas and travel the world. And I'm always like, yeah, you totally should do that. Go for it. I mean, I'd love you to stay and you're, you're great here, but I can't fight that. It's just a, it's a good thing to do. Yeah. So what is it about New Zealand and technology and music technology? There seems to be an inordinate amount of, of stuff going on there that you maybe wouldn't expect. And is it just kind of, one thing has triggered another and then there's a little a little music tech bubble there or is there something in the way that education works giving you a chance to to do things like be entrepreneurial and build tv stations even though they're not legal and all that what is it what is it about new zealand punching above its weight is is it is it even a thing or is it just kind of like wait it's just uh, happened that no way? i think i mean it's definitely a strong entrepreneurial bent or rather like a you kind of got to do it yourself it's a little bit like um you know being far removed and coming from a like a colonial kind of place where a lot of stuff you had to sort out yourself and so there's a lot of inventing there's some really amazing inventions you know that have come out of this country there's a lot of kind of this idea or this model of this crazy inventor in the back shed coming out with the jet boat and various other things that have been invented here mm. um I, I definitely think the music tech a lot of that has come from serato is just a, an environment where a bunch of smart people got to learn the tools of the trade and then went off to do other things and um you know there's a lot of people now who work in other companies in the industry that that learned at serato and have you know, there's a, quite a few people who were at Serato who went to Ableton and then some of them have kind of come back to New Zealand. So there's this cross-pollination that happens. Um, mm. And, yeah, there's a, this cool, like, in the few streets, we're, we're very close to this now, very close to the Serato office. And um, in the few streets around our area, there's this, like, little music tech hub Um in music actually have an office in New Zealand and do some of their product development, like literally across the road from us. Um, and there's this another cool company called Elgonaut that's doing um, software for like intelligently managing your sample libraries. They're just down the road. So yeah, this is really cool little scene. We're trying to take on Berlin as like music tech hub of the world. <laughs> We've got a ways to go. It just but- yeah. It just occurred to me, Berlin, just sprang into my mind when you said when you said that. Yeah, Berlin or, or so, you know, like I think yeah, Stockholm has some pretty – well, Stockholm's got well, – Sweden, I should say. I don't know if it's specifically Stockholm. I guess it is. It's got Spotify, which is arguably the biggest music tech company in the world these days. But, like, in terms of DJing and production, that sort of stuff, Berlin's yeah, a lot of where it's at with Native Instruments and Ableton mm. and all sorts of companies. 
So it's interesting you should talk about New Zealand having this kind of can can do attitude. I, I hate to say that on the day we're recording this, that Boris Johnson took over the United Kingdom Prime Minister's role. I think that was the exact words he used. But it, it is a can do attitude, isn't it? Is it kind of tied to the the spotlight not being on you? So you you, you mentioned this kind of colonial. Well, we've got to get it done somehow. Yeah. The colonial bit, I guess, gives you. Maybe I'm reading too much into it. Kind of gives the culture. It's well, you know. Um, we're going to make this happen. Yeah. Uh, how are we going to do it kind of yeah. zeal? Um, but at the same time, there's not many people watching. So for instance, you probably can set up an illegal TV station because guess what? It's not going to ch- It's not going to hurt no. anyone. And um, uh, whereas if you did that in London, of course, there were, there po- there's possibly real real issues involved, like the, the, the ambulances can't get where they've got yeah, to go. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. You know, the, the crowded airwaves. Are, you know, but, but there's this, this and, and the same thing happens where I where, where we're based in Gibraltar, which you couldn't get a more colonial little pinprick of, of the, the United Kingdom than Gibraltar. But it's such a tiny place um, that we have to do stuff on our own. And we've got kind of <clears throat> illegal television pumped around the whole country and we kind of get yeah. away with it and things like that. It's kind of what reminded me of it. Is there a sense of that in New Zealand? Like no one's watching, so we'll just do it yeah. anyway. And hey, what could, what, what's the worst? Yeah, I happen? mean, New Zealand is famously, <laughs> exactly that, what's the worst that could happen thing. New Zealand is fam- famously used as a test market for lots of um lots of new products and companies, you know, like uh, it is generally representative of the sorts of demographics that you'd see in uh, Western Europe or the US, right? But if things go terribly wrong, no one's really going to notice. So like uh, Windows 95 was, you know, a long time ago, but I knew, for those that don't know, Windows 95 was an operating version of Windows that came out in 1995. Um, but it was a big deal at the time, and it was first launched in New Zealand. There's lots of stories of uh, international companies or US companies trying out their stuff in New Zealand first because we're kind of seen as this market where it's like if they completely stuff it up and it all goes horribly wrong, it's like, well, it doesn't really matter. It's just New Zealand. But at the same time, they can learn from things. So, yeah, we are we are tested on a lot. Um, and similarly, you know, the kind of attitude comes from from us as well. You know, there's a lot you can get away with. Mm. So let's talk about um, your briefly about your time at Serato. You were there for what, about ten years. Yeah. So you must have changed pretty substantially as a person in that ten years at Serato. What kind of were the big the big things that that happened in your life in that first big chunk of your career? So um, far? Yeah, well, I was uh, pretty young when I started there. Um, uh, it was. It's still in my twenties, and it was like when I started it was just before the launch of the first DJ products. Before that, it had all just been like the studio plugins. Um, and I was young and keen, and bluffed my way into a great job, and um, convinced the the founders of the company to give me a huge amount of responsibility and um, a lot of free reign on a whole lot of things. You know, mostly around kind of like the stru- the the operational side of the company, like hiring and who to hire and how to structure things. And I learned a lot about how to grow a company and how to, you know, I think one of the things that um, doesn't really, isn't seen in the products, of course, and, and doesn't come out in the industry is like what the company is like inside uh, the culture of the company. And I was super mm. proud of, it was a great place to work. And, you know, there was a real, 
great vibe and a lot of respect and we 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 were really good to each other as you know as as people and um it was a fun fun place to work i think that was one of the things i learned the most about is how important it is and um and how it does kind of come across in in the things that the people who use the product see certainly one thing i think um that we learned a lot about and did quite differently was how we handled customer service and, and like how we handled like the way we talk to people. Like one of the things that we did that was really weird at the time was that we did all of our tech support on an open forum, um, which was very unusual. Um, we were just like, you know, let, we just let everyone see what we do and what problems come in and how we handle them. You know, it was a little bit, we were a bit cocky maybe. Um, we were sure of ourselves. It did have this great impact that if someone was being a real, was being really difficult and really unreasonable, everyone else could see it and just be like, well, actually, these guys, Serato, they're doing, they're trying to do, do right by you and you're just being really difficult. Um, and it also meant that, you know, when a customer came in with a problem, quite soon other customers were helping them with that problem. And that's, you know, like that community started to really grow and it's still, she hadn't been on there a little, in a little while, I must confess, but that, that forum and that online community around Serata was, was huge for a long time. And this is at a time when our competitors were kind of like shutting down conversations. And if there was criticism of the product, um, they'd like delete threads and things like that. And our attitude was very much like, if people are going to be critical of our product, I'd rather they were doing it here where we can see it than somewhere else where we don't know what's going on. And that's actually quite a common way of working now, but I guess it wasn't at the time, right? It's something that has become more understood. Yeah, well, I mean, like basically I think since Twitter and social media in general, but since Twitter, you can't hide behind like, you know, email us and we'll control the flow of information. It's just all out there. Um, yeah. But yeah, at the time it was quite unusual. But I mean, you ended up from literally talking your way into a job of a company that was was a handful yeah. of people to being the CEO, the being the CEO of that company when it was, I mean, as far as it was, a, it had become a small global business, right? With what, 75 people yeah, when you left? Right um, I mean, personally, how would that must have been you're still in your 20s right and and this is happening or just out of your 20s yeah. around that kind of time it's a very young age to be in that position and how did you deal with it how did you cope with it uh, was it just natural uh, um, you know what was it yes like no. for you? i mean just kind of a lot of it was like you know and i still uh feel this way about what we what i'm doing now and kind of talk to other founders and people wanting to start companies about this same thing is so much of it is making it up as you go along. And so much of it is just following your instincts and doing what you think is the right thing to do. Um, and so um, uh, a lot of it was, you know, I just winged it, <laughs> um, which on the one hand was like, we'll just do what we think we should do. And it's easy. And on the other hand, you know, like, was pretty stressful there were a lot of periods there where i was like i really don't know how to handle this situation or things are getting out of control or what should we do and um and it was pretty you know i found it hard definitely quite stressful quite full-on um in some periods 
I think one of the things I've learned as I've kind of done it longer and gotten older is I make a lot of mistakes and I don't worry quite so much about the mistakes anymore. Like more accepting of like, well, you make mistakes and things go wrong and it's more important that you just like how you react to it rather than beating yourself up too much about always knowing what the right thing to do is. Um, I mean, one of the things I found really crazy, there was the business side of it and the fact that we were kind of at the table with the big companies because we were, you know, dealing with, the major players and companies like Pioneer Corporation. At the time, it wasn't Pioneer DJ. It was like the Pioneer Corporation, which was like a huge company. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things I found crazy as a, you know, as a someone who was into the culture and loved the music was meeting artists. You know, it was like I sat down to lunch with Grandmaster Flash once. And I was like, I had to pinch myself. I was like, wow, this is really happening. Um, and not just the artists, but like, that's the other thing about the remoteness of where we were was that we would go to the States, which was our main market and we'd have these crazy experiences for a few weeks while we were doing a a trip. And then we'd go back home where everything was like quite quiet and normal, you know, and then we'd, we'd, so, you know, we'd go to New York and we'd go to these clubs and the DJs there would be would be like, oh my god, you guys are from Serato, you know, like this is totally, you know, this is early days. This is completely changing the game, and it's changing the way people are DJing, and it's changing the whole club scene in New York, you know, like because people don't go out. DJs don't carry a crate of house records and play a house set anymore, which means that people going to clubs don't go to a, like a house club and hear a house set all night long the DJs are changing it up way more. And that's like having this knock on effect through the whole culture. And they're like, really? You know, like, did we do, are we playing some part in that? Or did we do that? I found that really mind blowing as, as a young, you know, wanted to DJ and wanted to mix hip hop records and then meeting all of these idols and, and hearing that we were having some kind of impact on the whole culture was, was crazy. It's interesting. You should mention that because I think a lot of people don't realize the effect technology has on culture and the fact that a lot of the, the big leaps in culture are driven sometimes directly by something oh, yeah. that's happened in technology. I mean, we can all talk about sampling of course, and there's a very, very famous, um, TED talk where Mark Ronson talks about sampling and how it kind of fundamentally changed what is accepted as creative output and stuff like that. But I think of another example that the Jupiter synth in the nineties kind of defined the whole trance music scene, you know, without that single item, that that whole scene could not have happened. And Serato, I guess, did the same thing, but as you say, you weren't kind of ready for that. So it must've been a a crazy time to, to realize that you were at the cutting edge of something in the same way that the whole dance music scene yeah. Was, was kind of like that as well, wasn't it? It was like no one knew where it was going or how long it was going to last for. And yet, as you said yourself, everyone meets everyone at parties and it ends up turning into amazing, yeah. amazing stuff. Uh, and that was very oh, new, yeah. wasn't it? That was something I mean, we that were still talking before about. The, the late 80s, early yeah, we 90s, it wasn't really about, happening. Like, oh, you know, turntables outsold guitars for the first time ever this year. And like, to, could this mean that dance music and DJing could ever be as big as guitar music you know and you look at the top 40 in 2019 and how many like straight up guitar bands are there in the top 40 these days it's like 
now it's completely shifted. It's true, isn't it? And you look in any music shop window and there is always DJ equipment there alongside the bass guitar and the the trumpet hanging from the ceiling and so on. It's just that it's accepted as part of... And again, we both go to the NAMM show in um, yeah. in uh, Los Angeles every year and you walk around the halls there and it's now, it's now an accepted part. It's almost... Yeah. It's almost old news nowadays. Uh, it's not something innovative anymore. And in a way, it's got conservative, hasn't it? In a way, there are people who kind of already been nostalgic about the early days of this incredible technology that changed everything and, yeah, yeah, and not yeah, liking yeah. the I way mean, it's like, going. Well, that's actually one thing that I found fascinating as we went through is the the resistance to change. Um, and it was, it's kind of funny to think back on it over like a a 10 year period because first it was DVS, right? And first it was just the thing about DVS, I think that, that made it take off and made it really grow as fast as it did was it appealed to DJs that were touring. It appealed to DJs that were taking flights. Basically, that was the thing you could fly and you could carry your music on your computer, in your carry-on, and not check luggage and have to pay a huge amount of money uh, and run the risk that your you know, your box of records would get lost and then your tour would be ruined. And because it was these high-end people that were, were doing this and traveling, they were the ones that were out there kind of um, sharing the message and, and getting this message out. So that had a lot to do with it, it really taking off. Mm. Um, and then, so in that sense, it wasn't about all of the bells and whistles and the effects and the cue points and stuff like that. It was just a straight practicality. It was just like you could do exactly the same thing, but it was safer and easier. Once we got once we got past the kind of barrier of is my computer going to crash and people were like, look, you know, I've seen enough people doing this that I know it, it basically works. Uh, and then there was this massive backlash from like the oh, it's not it's not keeping it real. It's not pure. It should just be like vinyl only. Um, and then that subsided. There's definitely people who still have that message and still say those things, but that subsided a bit. And then the controllers came out, and then you had all of these people, many of whom I suspect were the same people who were like, "No, you know, it's got to be turntables. It can be DVS, but it's got to be turntables. You can't use the controller." But using a computer's okay now. It wasn't a little while ago, but now it's okay. But you definitely can't use a controller. And then like that changed, that got a little bit, you know, that's okay now, but definitely can't use the sync button. No, 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 you definitely can't do that. You know, and it's just like always like, <laughs> oh, actually, no, that's kind of, you know, that's handy, I'll do that. But this new thing, no, absolutely not. So it's funny to watch that wave of acceptance it's, 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 pass through. It's streaming music at the moment. You get the people who are completely happy using a DJ controller, software, the sync button and everything. But no, you have to have your really? music on your Why on your that? device. You can't, uh, you can't access <laughs> oh, the cloud funny. service to get your music. Yeah. That's not real. Um, there's always, yeah, there's always one step behind. It's almost like people need something to kick against and <laughs> they need to put a flag in the sand and say, right, this is, this is the level of, uh, the level we're going to go to. I, do, I will say, though, I do behind. remember a moment, um, the night that we were in Japan, we were on a business trip, and we went to a little, little, tiny little club, um, and there was a guy there DJing, um, and he had, like, this array of ridiculously expensive equipment. You know, he probably had 10 grand worth of stuff in his DJ booth. And he was just playing one track, 
and then another track and the only thing he was using was like basically the stuff that you do with two turntables and a mixer crossfading great selection great yeah. reading the room and just playing bangers good playing great not like not bangers as in big hits just playing great records i just had this moment you know a few drinks in where i was like i think this ultra simple you know without all of the extras djing is always just gonna be have a have a role to play and you know and i think there'll be if, if you know vinyl's actually made quite a resurgence in the instance since then but i imagine there'd be like there's this period of musical history locked into this format and there will you know f- not always you know for many many years and i would say even decades there'll be this party that you can throw where you turn up with a box of records and just play great tracks you know and then that mm. i love that no for sure for sure one thing we've learned is stuff, yeah. stuff never goes away does it? It, it it remains there and it warps and it takes its place and and it all contributes to the culture. So, Sam, we haven't even moved on to melodics, and we have to. Um, you you left Serato, and you dabbled about doing bits yep. and pieces in education. And education is clearly very important to you. So it's possibly not too surprising that you end up starting a company based in music education. Tell us what the motivation was for Melodics. And let there'll be people who don't know what Melodics is, so maybe best to start off okay, by Okay, so Melodics what, is what you've um, built. my new company, and it is for helping people learn how to play musical instruments, like actual instruments. Um, and the idea came from a little bit from frustration about how hard it is to learn to play instruments. And, you know, I've wanted to be able to play instruments all my life and had lessons when I was a kid and tried various different instruments and always been fairly poor at it. Um, and I um, wanted to do something new, you know, I've been at Serato for 10 years and I, I was really happy with where things were at. And it's like, if I'm going to ever do something else or, you know, start my own thing, then now's the time. Um, and a lot of it was just kind of like, what should I do? You know, thinking about it, I had a, an amazing network within the industry. You know, that's one thing that Serato was was quite different to other companies in that space and that we had partnered with so many of the other companies. You know, we, the Serato DJ products weren't just Serato products. They were Serato and Pioneer products and Serato and Newmark products and Serato and Reloop products. You know, we, we always partnered with these other companies. So I looked at that the space and I didn't I really didn't want to make anything that competed with certainly with my with Serato and you know I didn't want to try and make DJ software version seven because um, it was already pretty crowded and yeah. like I, I'd put everything I had into that I wasn't holding anything back didn't have any like it's like oh, I've just got this big idea about the future of DJing that starting this new company um, and the thing I really noticed was that. Um, there was this growing kind of shift towards like learning how to use the products as much as making them. Um, and that education was like technology was playing a bigger and bigger part in education and music education really hadn't changed at all for uh, hundreds of years. You know, like the state of the art was YouTube, basically. If you wanted to learn to play an instrument, YouTube was at that time and, you know, kind of still is in a way the best way to do it because it's just so much available. Um, but it's still, 
fundamentally like this one way medium where you can watch someone doing something and you can like try and understand what they're doing and you have the advantage of being able to pause it and rewind it. And I was kind of like, you do that with a VHS tape in the eighties, you know, like nothing's really changed. So the idea with melodics is that you, you plug your instrument in or you connect your instrument software listens to what you're playing and it analyzes your performance and it gives you both real time feedback. So you can see like, Oh no, I'm, I'm missing that note or I'm playing a little bit fast or a little bit slow. Um, but also that over time we build up the ability to analyze how you're playing and then be really intelligent about suggesting things that would help you learn faster. Um, so it's kind of like what a music tutor would do, you know, like listen to you and be like, this is a thing I think you need to work on. Um, but also, mm. I mean, the, the bigger part for it, for me is not actually that learning how to play. It's just recognizing that one of the hardest things about learning to play an instrument is um, – is sticking with it is like continuing to practice. Uh, and as an industry, I, I knew from, from working at this industry that one of the biggest problems is that people would buy the gear, not talking so much specifically about DJing, although I know this happens with DJing more about like traditional instruments. They'd buy the gear with the best intentions and they'd give it a go. And they wouldn't, you know, six months later, they'd kind of be like, I still suck. I'm just going to give up. Um, and so a lot of our, um, our kind of core belief about how to make this work is by helping people to get into good habits with practice and like really just motivating practice and trying to get establish this habit of practicing every day. So that's a lot of what we do is like how to encourage you to practice basically. Um, there's some really interesting psychology around practice and around motivation. It turns out, um, that you're motivated not necessarily by how much progress you're actually making, but much more how much progress you feel like you're making. So, so that means you could be making amazing progress, but if you don't believe in yourself and you and you kind of don't see it, you might be like, ah, I'm really not motivated. And conversely, you could be making terrible progress, actually. But if you feel like you're making progress, you're going to be really motivated. So that's one of the biggest tools that we have is just like, feeding back how you're doing and showing that you're doing better. And it really is amazing how well that works. You know, it's like, I might not be a virtuoso yet, but I can see how much better I am today than I was 10 days ago. And so mm. I just want to keep going. It's interesting because as you say, in describing what Melodics does, you know, great music tutors, they, they, they do this naturally. They know this. They know that you, they've got to keep you motivated because Coaching is as important as yeah. actual technical know-how, isn't it? Being coached, being shown that you can do this, and that you know, the, as a, as as the 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 founder of an yeah. education company myself, I know that you know I spend more time coaching people than teaching people. There's there's only so much you can teach people before they have to go and make their own discoveries and forge their yeah. own path in any creative pursuit. But it is as much about getting people to that point, getting people to the point where they're starting to, it's kind of feeding back into itself yeah. and they don't need you quite so much anymore. Um, so Melodics is doing this automatically in a way that music teachers, I guess, have always done it yeah. in, intuitively. And yeah, and I, mean, right? I think, you know, like I took a lot of inspiration from companies like Fitbit and Duolingo, you know, that are, they're using this kind of gamified approach to helping you to be motivated to, to actually do something that you really want to do yourself, like 
get a little bit fit or healthy and or learn a language but just these little prompts and tools really do work to just be like right okay i can do my five minutes five minutes a day and um it does it does work i mean and we're really focused on the like music producer you know people who make music um at the moment rather than just like straight up i want to learn to play an instrument and it's cool like some of the testimonials that we get or the feedback that we get is that people use melodics they get into this like five minute habit and they use it to like warm up their studio session they use it as they're like well i'll just go into my studio and i'll just do my five minutes practice but more often than not by the end of that five minutes they're like feeling warmed up i'm feeling inspired i'm going to try and make some music that's fantastic i bet you never thought that would be the case at the beginning of a beginning of the journey that people were this is almost like a, a, a Zen meditation kind of thing. It's kind of take getting you into yeah. the zone so you can do the stuff you came here to do. So, so is it like the DJ hero or the sing star of, of kind of the professional musician, as opposed to the, yeah, exactly. The family I mean, I think, back at the weekend. Um, uh, I got, I got right into guitar hero when it came out and I bought the little plastic controllers and I played lots of songs and had fun. It was a good time. And I was kind of like, surely this could be like I could actually be learning to play guitar right now rather than just wasting my time entertaining myself uh, and I think a lot of people have that thought um yeah. certainly not unique but when I actually came to it after I left Serato I looked at what was available and one of the one of the really best ones was this product called Rocksmith which was a console game you know that like you play it on your PlayStation or your Xbox and it was literally guitar hero with a real guitar but I felt like they just pushed it too far in the game direction. You know, like I think we use the gaming bits, mm. like there are levels and streaks and stars and things like that. But you've got to be a bit cautious because if you go too far, then it's just like, is this for real or is it a game? You know? And so my our approach is very much like it is for real and we are here to help you learn to play this instrument. We're just going to borrow enough of that stuff so that you know, you want to come back tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day because actually that is what makes the difference. You know, like learning to play an instrument, just like learning DJing, mm. it's, um, you just got to, it's a grind, you know, you got to put in the hours and you got to do the work and there are lots of shortcuts and, you, you know, it's great to watch other people and talk to other people and get tutorials and watch tutorials and do all that sort of stuff, but there's no substitute for practice. Uh, and so that's like our core belief is just like get help make the practice part instead of it being a chore and a, to, you know like I said a grind make it the actual fun bit. So for people listening to this thinking that sounds good, you can go to melodics dot com and check out Sam's company. You left Serato with what seventy five eighty people working there. How far have you got with melodics so far? And um, considering I remember yeah. chatting to you about the idea all those years ago, Sam, where, where were you at? Where's the company um, we at? Have and, and where's it going around next? about 25 people uh, now. I say around about because there are, um, there's a kind of a wide crew of people that work for us like part-time or contract, but on a regular basis. Um, quite a big crew of people like yeah. musicians who make are making the lessons. Um and we, uh-huh. when we started out, we started out with finger drumming. Um, like the first instrument was uh, pad controllers. Um, and I did that because I knew yep. from my time at Serato and being in the industry that 
pads were going crazy and really taking off. Um, and there were, uh, you know, the kind of NPC style products that were, you know, drum machines with pads on them. Machina, and the 8x8 ones like Ableton Push and all these products that were doing really, really well. All of the MIDI keyboards had pads on them. All of the DJ products had pads on them. There were pads on everything. And yet I was like, I could name six people that really know how to play these. There's like, there's Jeremy Ellis and there's Arab Music and there's this person and that, you know, like it was a very small list of people who could really, really, really shred it. And I was like, why is this industry kind of building an, this instrument? Because that's kind of what it was. Um, when there are so few people that can actually play it. Um, and not only that, the way to learn to play it, there's no way to learn to play this stuff. Um, I mean, I remember pitching um, to Ableton when I was like, hey, here's my idea, you know, I'm, I'm testing it out. It was, it was a, the same, a couple of months before I pitched it to you, Phil, like the first time we talked about it at a NAMM show. And I was like, I've watched the promo videos for um, Ableton Push, and it's like you can do, you know, add effects and do sidechain compression and add a MIDI track and you can do all of this stuff. And then there's one section where it's like, and you can like basically finger drum, play your beats in live. It's like, cool, I want to do that bit. How do I learn how to do that bit? And it's like, there's nothing. Um, and so I was really keen to, and I could see this kind of you know, movement happening. You know, I, I kind of likened it. To, it had been around for a long time and there were people who were, um, you know, had NPCs since the late 80s and could do this stuff. But there was this like big gap between all the products that were being made, made and the, the skills that were out there. So anyway, that's what motivated us to do finger drumming first. Um, that was our starting point and then um, did that for a year, a couple of years and then brought out a new version that also supported electronic drums and keyboards. Um, and so now we do like melodics for keys is probably the like the biggest and and fastest growing area of the business. Um, and then the plan is to keep building that out and you know build a platform that we can add support for other instruments too. So like over time, add more and more instruments and build out the, a platform. Well, it's fantastic to hear that that progress. And of course, we're excited to see what comes next but i wanted to kind of end off by asking you away from all of this what what do you, what do you do to relax what do you do to unwind are you one of these people that goes on long walks do you like to cook mm. do you you know what is it what is it you do to kind of get some balance away from the technology and away from the music and away uh, from the, actually a the little bit more of the above. i mean life. i have um young kids um my wife and i have nine-year-old seven-year-old five-year-old so that is uh both a great way to escape from work and also at the same time there is no escape from that you know so i love spending time with them and it's very all consuming <laughs> when we're doing it um and i mean i do love living where we live and one of the great things is you know like half an hour in any direction from the city there's oceans and beaches and walks and so yeah we do a lot of that um for um I guess for managing the stress and unwinding from work, uh, 
just gotten more and more into reading. Yeah, and there's all these like in the kind of business world, there are all these books always that get recommended and these bestsellers and the latest thinking on how to grow a company. I, I never read any of that stuff. I would like, I kind of gave up after my wife just like pointed out, I'd always buy these books and have them sitting next to my bed and never, ever, ever read them. So I just like read fiction, a huge amount of fiction as much as I can. Just like the more stressed I am, the more I read, it's just a great escape. Um, and yeah, it's like, my unwind definitely a nine-year-old a seven-year-old and a five-year-old it must feel like you're escaping the stress of work coming home and escaping yeah, the stress of home going to work sometimes me. it's uh, as, as, a, as a father of an eight-year-old and a six-year-old I kind of I've got yeah. two-thirds of what you've got so I know exactly what that feels like kind of motivates you doesn't it uh, yeah it's a change is as good as the rest they say so before we end i want to circle back sam to the the wu-tang story Um, about have a look at uh just like go online uh on youtube and look for rizza dvs or maybe rizza uh replicator because he's doing this interview and it's a fairly um normal interview there's a I, i have no idea who's interviewing him or what the original context was but he's sitting in a cafe and he's, and this guy who's interviewing him says, oh, what do, you, what do you think about Serato? I think he says Serato. I don't know if he says DZ, DVS or DJ Technology or, you know, like I think he actually said Serato. And Riz is just like, I invented it. And the guy's like, what? So I invented it. And they're like, I remember seeing this. And I was like, has, has Riz been in our office lately? You know, I didn't know this. But then he goes on to make this claim that he did invent it and that he met these guys and I think they were Swiss and they had this idea and I think maybe when he says invented it, maybe he bankrolled it, you know, or he put some money in. They had this product called the Replicator and this is all like, um, go after, uh, Phil, you should after this go and have a look at it. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to put the link um, on And he makes these wild, bold claims in this interview. As well, of and it's just like so out of the blue that you're like, no, what? You know, and he's, he looks maybe like he's a little bit high. I don't know. It's just like, it's crazy. It's crazy. Like, but then <laughs> anyway, it unfolds. It's all completely true. Uh, and it didn't unfold quickly. Over time, the story came out of like these these Swiss, the Swiss crew. Uh, details are a little sketchy, but I think that the product they made was called the Replicator, and they did a demo of it live at a party. They used it at a party, and it was essentially uh, a DVS or a variation on DVS. And and the RZA had come across them and got involved and helped make it happen. Um, it didn't, you know, obviously. It's not hugely known and it didn't go on to be very successful, but it was like his claims were quite legitimate and it was, it was pretty amazing. I just remember when it came out and just like mm. the day in our office when he claimed that he had invented Serato and we were, all, we were Serato, it was our company and we were like, what? What is this guy talking about? Yeah, it's quite an existential, it's kind of like finding out you're adopted or something, isn't it? There's something existential yeah. about that news coming Absolutely. into a young company. <laughs> well sam it's been fantastic spending an hour with you thank you so much for your time and uh, have a wonderful evening all the best thank for you. the continuing developer melodics really looking forward to seeing where that goes and from all of us here at Digital thank you Digital and Tips, i will um, see you next time thank you for your time thanks take care sam 